tonight and next week, uh, the classes are going to be really an inquiry on how to work wisely with the most difficult forces that we encounter. It's one thing to sit and have a meditation and have everything be easy. And uh, one woman was writing me a note about a peak experience she had and how, you know, just everything fell away and it was just light and um, warmth and love. And with what pain she encountered her next sitting, to, you know, when she found that it just was not sustained, you know, and it just doesn't get sustained. Um, the Buddha's most basic teaching around the experiences we have are that they're comprised of pleasant experiences, unpleasant and neutral experiences. And that when it's pleasant, we're wired to try to hold on. When it's unpleasant, we're wired to try to push it away. When it's neutral, we tend to space out. We just go off trying to make mischief in some way with our minds or plan more pleasant experiences or worry about unpleasant things that might happen. So the difficult forces that we refer to are really the forces that are reactions to pleasant and unpleasant experiences. And every spiritual tradition has mapped them out because all beings that have the same longing to be as wakeful as possible, encounter the exact same forces. They're organized a little differently in different traditions, but the same uh, challenges that were known in the time of the Buddha were also known by the early Christian mystics and are alive and well here in Bethesda today. It's all the same stuff. Now here's how classical Buddhism describes these forces. The first is described as clinging, it's the wanting mind, okay? The second, aversion, it's the I don't want mind. The third is sleepiness, the fourth, restlessness, and the fifth, doubt. These are called the hindrances, and I don't use that word so much But in some way, the idea is that when these forces are present, they in some way obscure or make difficult a feeling of sacred presence. We get reactive and caught up. So what I find is that every time I intentionally explore these forces, really look at them, in some way it deepens and revitalizes practice. Actually, what it most does is, I find when I look at them and pay attention to them, I actually relax a lot. And I know that sounds strange, but in a way, um, by exploring the challenging forces, we realize they're not so personal. I think our biggest pain around them, when we get restless or sleepy or grasping or fearful, is that sense that something is defective with me. You know, my meditation's bad, I'm not doing it right, something's wrong with me. So, uh, part of the spirit or intention of this inquiry is to loosen that up some. To honestly recognize these are conditioning that is at least present in all mammals, 
and we don't know exactly, you know, what stage of evolution, what's there, but at least in mammals, so we're part of that. We start with a look at our attitude, as I was just mentioning, and it's the starting point and the ending point. Like, how do we relate to it when things are difficult? Most of us, as well-informed as we are about this, still have this habit of having a certain kind of meditation and having a type of meditation we call a good one. I mean, I do that. I mean, I get up sometimes in the morning and if it's really peaceful and open, you know, I'll walk out and tell somebody, oh, I just had a great meditation, you know, and it's, it's just this way of labeling. And the other side of it is if we sit through a half an hour of obsessing about something or feeling sleepy or um, panicking about things, we don't call it a good meditation, right? So somehow or other, we, in a very fundamental way, need to change our interpretation of what's going on because we're all subject to the same weather. We don't just have, you know, sunny skies. Each one of us has days that it's foggy or rainy internally, just the way it is externally. And just the way we don't make the weather wrong, call it imperfect or bad, feel ashamed of the outside weather, it's part of our cultivation of wise understanding to have these forces arise within us. The most intense ones, hatred, anger, rage, and begin to recognize it as weather, really recognize it as weather. Some of you that have been coming a lot here over the years have heard this expression through many classes, and yet my sense is that it's probably one of the most fundamental places that we can find some freedom when we don't take it so personally, when we have less and less lag time between the arising of fear or the arising of grief or whatever and the sense of, oh, okay, this is one of those forces, one of those universal energies. Not taking it so personally. There's a wonderful quote. Be noble, for you are from the stars. Be humble, for you are made of dung. True and true, right? We know it. Probably read the newspapers, that story on uh, how we're going to be, for the first time, getting particles from a comet. They didn't expect it to come so close, and 2005 scientists are going to get to look at these particles. And most likely, the reason there's life here is because some comet seeded Earth with some materials from the outer realms of space. We are from the stars. We are. And we're from this earth. Hummus. Humility. You know, hummus is the root of humility. We are of this earth means we are humble. Accepting the conditioning towards stormy weather, towards unconditional, uncontrollable weather, and fair weather. And then we're from the stars. Our essence is light-filled, it's radiant, it's wakeful, it's aware. Now, practice deepens in a very radical way 
as we begin to embrace both of those interdependent truths. In fact, as we bring that wakeful star-like awareness to the hummus, to the earth, to the seasons, to the weather, we become whole and we become free. Now, different people go through different seasons of intensity and, and there's different ways of responding to the rounds we have of working with intense weather. But we'll just go over some of the basic parts of it. Either way, if we stay with what arises and we don't resist it, and we're kind, and we don't take it so personally, with each new round there's a deepening faith that this is workable, that we can handle the life that arises. And it's our deepest fear that we can't. And if we look really closely, our fear is that it's going to be too much, that we can't handle it. So this practice of opening to the different weather systems, not turning our attention away, but really courageously opening to what's there, is really a pathway of finding deep well-being. Because there's this confidence that we can handle whatever life presents, including the death of these bodies. And it's part of this path that we learn how to die, we learn how to open to that. Otherwise we just go around with this fear in our body that doesn't allow us to live fully. So healing begins with this recognition of these forces, being actually able to, instead of being caught inside them and reacting out of them, actually go, oh, restlessness is happening, or oh, sleepiness, or aversion be able to name what's going on. Our nature is naturally wakeful and free. Therefore, practice is about discovering the ways that we block or contract our natural being. Uh, John Thurber writes, all humans should strive to learn before they die what they're running from and to and why. So in many traditions they describe it that we're in prison when we don't sense really what these forces are and that the first step of getting out is to recognize our bondage, that we're actually in bondage. Sigmund Freud wrote this, Life as we find it is too hard for us and entails too much pain, too many disappointments, impossible tasks. We cannot do without palliative remedies. There are perhaps three of these means, powerful diversions of interest, which lead us to care little about our misery, substitutive gratifications, which lessen it, and intoxicating substances, which make us insensitive to us. Something of this kind is indispensable. Sigmund Freud. (laughs) So learning how we step aside, how we avoid, and looking directly in the face of these forces which both create suffering when we avoid them and are the grounds of freedom when we embrace them. Okay, taking the first now, clinging. You might think of, okay, so where am I clinging? Where in this life 
is their grasping. And most of us know we cling and we grasp after pleasant experience or desire, which is not, of course, the problem unless we have to have it, unless our sense of happiness or well-being is dependent on it. And that's what uh, the Buddhists call frequently, if only mine, that I would be happy right now in my life if only X, Y, and Z were in place. You know, if only the perfect body or the perfect lover or just the attention I need from a certain person or this, this, and this achievement, if only. I get snagged in if only mind around completing certain work projects. Like, I get this idea that if I can just get this done, I really could just sit back and relax. And it never is true. Never. I mean, as soon as something's done, the mind just fixes on the next thing that needs to get done. If you're in the habit of if-only mind, it keeps on arising. It's amazing. Now, the problem with if-only mind, we think that certain things are going to bring us happiness. Some of them are culturally fed in. If we have the perfect marriage or relationship, we'll be happier. If we really accomplish something creative at work, So we have this equation, to be happy means X, Y, or Z. And then we organize our life around it. One writer said we climb, put the ladder against the wall only to climb up and find out it's against the wrong wall. Now why? Nothing that we attach our happiness to can deliver. No thing can deliver. Every person we know is going to die. Every achievement we know ends up passing, we just need to go and perform again. I know one friend that said that he had it in his mind that if he could just write that book, you know, just get that perfect book written, because we all have this book we're trying to write, if just that, then, you know, he'd be sailing. So he wrote the book, he put a lot of energy into it, and it was a great book, but then other people in the same genre were writing two, three, four books, so he had to keep up, you know. It only carries you for a couple of years. Nothing lasts. At best, we get a temporary zing of pleasure and gratification, and it goes away. We know that. Just brief moments of fleeting pleasantness. A sad story. Some other friends of mine finally pulled it together to buy that house in the country, and a few weeks later, he was diagnosed with leukemia. It all passes. If we think our happiness is dependent on anything, we're on the wrong track. But it's the nature of wanting mind, never enough. There's always this sense, even when things are pleasant and good, how much do we really rest in it? Isn't there usually that little tweaking part of our mind saying, how long is this going to last, and the fear that comes up that it's going to be taken from us? How often do we have sustained periods of unalloyed happiness? So most of us, when we look closely, have these substitutes, these things that make us happy because they make us think we're on our way to being happy. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And we attached our, this longing, this deep longing to be whole and to be free to these little indicators or to these substitutes. 
we want to belong to life, and so we kind of hitch on to getting recognized by certain people that are important to us, that if we think if they recognize us, then it matters. Or we want to feel whole in some way, and we get emotionally dependent on certain people to be with us this lifetime, or we want to feel full, and then we try to fill ourselves with TV or entertainment or food or whatever. O'Donohue writes, if you forget and try to fill longing with something else, you lose yourself and wander more and more away from where your heart wants to go. Your hungers become more intense and your life becomes more forsaken. We know it. It's kind of like if we are really thirsty and we drink salt water instead of fresh water. And it just makes us more thirsty. It doesn't work. So part of the path is to just begin to be aware of that chasing after, going for something. It's painful. In fact, if you right now, and I just invite you to do it, just see if you can sense what in your life you do have craving around, wanting, that there's a strong, not enough, want it, want more. And see if you can sense in your body, the posture that represents that. The way of, in some way, grasping with your hands. You might feel your hands and sense, what is wanting like in the hands? Or how does the body lean forward? And what's it like to really be in the grip of wanting? And those of you that are uninhibited, see if you can get your bodies into that position. Use your hands, use your face. I want, I want, and think of what you want. Take some moments on this. Exaggerate. Wanting when it's something we're very identified with is painful. It's uncomfortable at least. It wants for the next moment to contain what this moment does not, which means there's a real sense of not okay. All kinds of wanting. Now, here's the thing about wanting is that it's also evokes shame. Very early on, we were given messages that our wantings were not okay. Our parents could not deal with all of them. So we developed the sense that our wanting, our emotional wanting, our sexual wanting, all levels of wanting, in some way cannot be exposed. How often do we let other people know how much we want sexually or how much we want to be held? or how much we really want attention or to be recognized. In fact, it's so shameful that we often don't even let ourselves be aware of how deeply we want something. We disconnect from our own longings. The most painful wanting, of course, is when there's a full-blown addiction and you can, there's no way to look away. You, you just are constantly obsessed with having something to feel a little bit okay. And you keep having to have more and more and more.
enough on wanton mind for now. <laughs> the opposite or the flip side is aversion. Aversion's actually wanting. It's the want. It's the not wanting of what's here. Um, it just—it's got a different flavor to it, but it's the same mechanism. It's aversion to the unpleasant, and it usually takes the shape of fear and anger and grief. It's not getting what you want, and aversion's a pushing away energy. It's a reflex to get rid of what's unpleasant. And the flag with aversion is much more blatant than with wanting mind. It's something is wrong. With aversion, there's something is wrong, and usually there's a sense something's wrong with me. Even when we're angry at someone else and the blame is affixed outward, there's still an underlying disempowered feeling. Something is wrong with me. Usually our strongest sense of identification, of solid self, is when we're hooked by aversion, when it's really kicked up. Now in sitting practice, aversion becomes very clear. In sitting practice, wanting mind's clear. We can see ourselves obsessing about, I want this, I'd want to go home and have good dinner, and I want this to happen after class. Well, aversive mind's similar. Physical unpleasantness will come up, and immediately it kicks in. Don't like this. Want it to go away. Our fear. I don't think I can handle this. Or we have a memory of something somebody did and anger, you know, this real sense of wanting to push away that being. It's very hard to sit with aversion. I know for myself that during the time I was really chronically sick, um, and of course even that chronic, it cycled, when I was in the midst of physical unpleasantness, to sit down and have to be mindful and present with physical unpleasantness is very difficult. Every time it would kick in, there would be this sense of, I don't like this, I want to stop meditating. I don't want to be with this. So there's a lot of suffering. We do a lot to not feel what's painful. We go into our heads and into our thoughts and into all sorts of avoidance behaviors. In meditation practice, it takes usually the form of thinking when you're off in a lot of thought trains. There can easily be aversion trying to get away from the body. And then, of course, in daily life, we overeat to numb ourselves, we oversleep, we stay busy to not feel what's painful. When we feel aversive, when we're rejecting an unpleasant experience, we distance from our own bodies and we distance from others. Anytime you feel yourself really pulled back from other people in an aversive way, you can assume there's an aversion to an unpleasantness internally, simultaneously. It's just how it is. We get alienated from ourselves and from others. One of my favorite cartoons is of this very harried businessman. You can tell he's having a hard life. And he's on the phone and he says, No, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? No. You know, that sense of just doing everything you can, all the different strategies to put people off. This was former Postmaster General J. Edward Day revealed in his book An Ingenious Way to Stop Long-Winded Telephone Callers. Day suggests you hang up while you are talking. (laughs) 
the other party will think you were accidentally cut off because no one would hang up on his or her own voice. <laughs> now none of us can do it to each other, right? <laughs> we go to a lot of extremes, though, to create distances, to recluse, to avoid other people on an intimate level because intimacy with our inner life can be so difficult. So aversion, this not liking, it's a basic conditioning and anything can trigger it off, any kind of unpleasantness. And it's very much in our culture, the, the acting out around it, the ways that we shut off. It's very hard when we're caught in wanting our aversion to really see another being. I mean, when, think of the people in your life that you have a strong agenda around, that you want something from or that you fear something's going to happen with. Whenever there's strong wanting or fearing, it's very hard to see what's true. The mind is clouded in quite a strong way. Now, I have attorneys in my family, so I feel like it's okay to read this to you. <laughs> because it's a (laughs) put-down. But attorneys have an adversarial role to play, so often truth doesn't have anything to do with things. This is the attorney asking, she had three children, right? Answer, yes. How many were boys? None. Were there any girls? (laughs) You say the stairs went down to the basement, yes. And these stairs, did they go up also? Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Answer, no. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then it's possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy. (laughs) No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. (laughs) Question, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? (laughs) It is possible he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. (laughs) now doctor isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep he doesn't know about it until the next morning (laughs) was it you or your younger brother who was killed in the war (laughs) oh well and they go on The point is, (laughs) when we want something or when we fear something, we're not really here. We're not able to pay attention to our own hearts, to what's true within us, to what's true around us. So there's wanting mind, there's aversive mind. Now the last three that I named, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, are actually versions of wanting and aversion. Sleepiness. It's when we feel that lazy, tired, don't feel like it, throw in the towel. There's different kinds. Sometimes we're really biologically tired, and sometimes um, it's a habit. But frequently, sleepiness is a withdrawal, as is depression, from what's difficult. It's the sluggish or dull mind that loves the snooze alarm, you know? It's difficult to be present or wakeful when it's that kind of withdrawing into a dream energy. We postpone making an effort. 
Now with sleeping, there's pleasure, so it's partly wanting the pleasure of it. You know, in Asia, sleep has been described as a poor man's nirvana. Mm-hmm. It is because there's a there's a loveliness to it, and there's also an addiction to it to avoid really being fully here. So the Buddha described this as one of the great forces that arises that is both natural and sometimes biologically we're really sleepy, we need to go to sleep, but is also a way of aversion and grasping that can keep us from really being right here and living the moment fully. So there's sleepiness and then there's restlessness. Now restlessness is, um, again, one of the universal ones that's incredibly difficult because when restlessness sweeps through, it's this windy energy, we just want to jump out of our bodies. It's very hard to want to sit and meditate when you're restless. Have you noticed? It's awful. There's an excessive energy, just as sleepiness has kind of a low energy, restlessness is an excessive energy, and it's both physical and it's mental. When the mind is restless, there's this agitated worrying, and once one thing's, you're done worrying about one thing, there's this kind of scanning mechanism looking for the next thing to worry about, just this energy that needs to kind of grab onto things. The body moves around, and the mind moves around, and underneath that's usually aversion. There's some sense that something's not okay, and it's really scary to just sit down in that. So restlessness, and then the last, doubt. Now doubt is in many ways considered the most challenging of all the forces, because when doubt arises, and doubt is in some way a doubt in the process, a doubt that life's going to turn out okay, and mostly it's a doubt in the sense of who we are. There's a feeling of insufficiency, I can't do it doubt in the practice. I'm too young, I'll never get this, or I'm too old, I started too late, you know, or I'm not healthy enough to do this, or, you know, maybe it's maybe I should be Sufi dancing, this just isn't the right feeling, or, you know, it's just, there's all these different ways we go through it. But the mind spins, and it's exhausting when we go into doubt. And as you've noticed, when self-doubt is great, we get paralyzed, it's very hard to make an effort, because there's this feeling, feeling a futility, like, why bother? It's not going to work anyway. And so the very things we would do to deepen practice or to get inspired or to get revived, we don't reach out and do it because it's so depressing. Doubt underlies depression. It's that doubt in being okay, I'm not okay, and then the system goes, uh, and kind of collapses. There's a traditional simile that describes the five forces in terms of a pond of water and that when craving or wanting mind arises, it's like the water's filled with dyes of all these colors that are really beautiful and very entrancing and enchanting and yet it's impossible to see to the bottom. We get totally enraptured with the different changing colors of dye. We can't penetrate the moment. And when aversion is present, it's like the water's boiling. You know, that feeling of boiling, it just cannot settle. And again, you can't see to the 
bottom of the pond. When sleepiness is there, it's described as water covered with algae, you know, a thick layer of algae. Uh, very dense, and with restlessness or worry, it's windswept. Again, the surfaces are all churning. And doubt, the water is muddied. Wisdom is obscured. So how to relate? We began tonight by describing how these forces are universal. One thing that helps me, and sometimes I do it in class, when somebody asks me a question about sleepiness, I'll say, how many of you were working with sleepiness tonight? And usually, oh, at least 50, 70 percent of the hands go up. And there's something really reassuring. (laughs) You know, as soon as you see the numbers, um, it does, it's less personal. It's like being in a 12-step group and having everybody describe these kind of similar and really painful experiences around addiction, but you realize it's just, you're not alone. It's not so shameful and it's not so personal. We all are struggling. It's an important recognition. So we start by noticing, ah, okay, it's one of those forces. And you'll find most things that happen are one of those forces if you're getting tugged away from your experience. Second is not only to not judge, but to really include. If there's even the slightest, oh, this isn't really what meditation's about. I've got to get rid of the sleepiness or rid of the restlessness so I can really feel what it's about. We create a shadow. We create adversity. We create an enemy. Our path is not about in any way struggling with our experience. That doesn't mean there's not skillful means for getting more alert if we're sleepy or settling if we're restless. But the bottom line is it's a practice of befriending, not alienating parts of our being. So there's to not judge, to see what's going on, to not get so identified. The moment that we can name what's going on, the moment we can say, oh, wanting mind, there's less of our being in the shape of wanting mind and more of this kind of ocean of awareness that includes the waves of wanting but can let them come and let them go because we are not identified as that wanting mind. Chogyam Trungpa did a class some years ago and he had this huge sheet of white paper and right somewhere in the middle he had a little V and he asked everybody, what is this? And um, different people at different times you know, said different things, but mostly everybody said, oh, it's a bird. And then he said, no, it's the sky with a bird flying through it. And so it is that when we begin to recognize what's going on, we reopen to a more whole sense of being. We can include what's there, but with some balance. This is a story that I love, and it's a story of the Abenaki Indians. Um, And it's about a curious young warrior, an ancestor from mythical times, and something of a mischievous trickster who sets out one day to stop the wind. Now, he had been trying to paddle his canoe across the river, but the wind kept blowing him back and made it impossible for him to get to the other side, so he figured he'd get to the bottom of things. (laughs) So he goes out after the wind, determined to find its source, and heads into it, hiking over vast stretches of land. 
and after a long search he finds it high on a mountain in the Adirondacks in the form of an old wind eagle whom he calls Grandfather. He tricks Grandfather into falling into a crevice between two mountains and thereby takes all movement out of the world. The weather gets hot, the ponds dry up and fill with scum, the fish and animals die, the people are miserable, in other words, stopping the wind makes everyone very uncomfortable. Now, just to say that in the Tibetan system, especially in their medical tradition, the word wind is a description for the movement of the mind. These minds move, they think, and, and emotional disturbances are disturbances of wind, emotion, movement. They're meant to be there, wind is supposed to be there. And there's a prominent wind disorder that afflicts meditators. And that's a disorder when we struggle to try to control our emotions and control our mind so that we can experience spiritual stuff. You understand that's a disorder, that controlling. So what happened in this story is that the wise grandmother who appeared somehow uh, talked sense to this impatient young hero and and told her and convinced him to restore the wind to its proper place by saying that movement is part of creation. It's just meant to be. These movements of emotions, of wanting, of fearing, of anger, it's all part of creation. In fact, rather than controlling, it's by bringing a wise, compassionate awareness to the movement, the forms of creation, that we actually reawaken. It's by being with them that we awaken, not by getting rid of them. So with that, I thought we'd sit for a while and have the particular intention to bring mindfulness to whatever forces arise. It might be your luck tonight to be in perfect blissful peace, in which case you'll have nothing to report, but we'll see. If you need to stretch your legs out for a moment or stand up, please feel free and then we'll sit together for a bit. So we'll be sitting for about 15 minutes and then afterwards you'll be invited to report if you, if you so choose on what you noticed, what forces arose, how you responded to them internally, what was challenging, what was easy, but we will take some time for sharing and questions tonight beginning as we do by establishing a genuine sense of presence, feeling your body, loosening in the places that are tight, sensing the intention to be present, the intention to be unconditionally friendly, noticing what arises, 
the different experiences, forces of wanting or fearing or sleepy or restless or doubt, of great pleasure, of unpleasantness, to recognize these with an open and clear attention. To name what arises if that helps you with a light, friendly background noting. If the mind is often thinking, you might sense the wanting going on underneath the thoughts, wanting, wanting, or fearing, aversion, aversion. To name or note what you notice. To notice your response to what's happening. To notice when you're disengaged, when you leave because it's just neutral in some way. And finally to notice when there's a sense of presence and there's no real reactivity, just the simplicity of, ah, here, now. There's nothing that can arise that's wrong, just ways of experience. It's our capacity to recognize and be with whatever arises with this quality of presence and kindness. As always, if it assists you in quieting to let the breath be the center of your practice. And then open with mindfulness to whatever presents itself.
the mind is lost in thoughts to gently notice that and feel what's true this moment in the body and the heart
Noticing what's true for you in your experience without struggling, naming what's there. If an experience arises again and again, continued light, friendly background noting. You can begin fresh in any moment by just relaxing through the body, bringing the attention 
just what's happening. This breath, these feelings or sounds. For these last few moments, a very relaxed and kind attention, present, open, clear.
So how's the weather? Um, any like anybody would like to share or have any questions on being with these forces? Lynn? And over the time, how did that go? Could you all hear? So just having um, the intentionality to be aware of forces that arise actually set this looking, what's going on, Who's, what's happening, what's wrong, <laughs> you know, this kind of tension. And as soon as Lynn was able to say, oh, this is ridiculous, because it was just another appearance, tension, you know, then there was a little more space. Yeah, thank you. Good. Yeah. I'm going to repeat that because there's some there's a piece of that I think might be useful. Um, that what he did was go into it with this. Oh, okay. So whatever comes comes, and kind of in a letting go, open way. And um, when sleepiness did arise, it was just you know let it come, let it be there. But then doubt came up, like hey, maybe I'm not really doing this right or responding right. And then then it became kind of confusing. Kind of. Now, did you note doubt? Doubt. You'd notice, oh, you just say, okay, doubting, doubting. And then what would happen when you'd notice that doubting was going on? Did you, um, see, here's the thing. Whatever comes up, if let's say it's doubting and then it goes to confusion, then it's actually the same process of mindfulness. It's, oh, confusion, confusion. In other words, you can always put a frame around, a, a frame of recognition around anything as soon as you notice it. That's the magic, is that there's nothing, there's no weather system that arises that has to, in some way, make it wrong, a failure. All you do is include it. 
And the noting is frequently a helpful way. It's not always. Some people get so into naming things that they kind of push away things with the naming rather than be with more fully. So the next step for you would have been, oh, confusion, confusion, and sense, what's this like? You know, just to include that in awareness. Thank you. Others, yeah. <laughs> so you didn't go into why me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, the value of that is not just to demeet, diminish what's going on. I know I used to do use that technique wrong. I used to get waves of feeling lonely or wounded or whatever, and then I'd say, "Oh, come on, Tara. There are so many people worse off out there. There's so many people that are in war zones or this or that." And then I wouldn't pay attention to my own vulnerability. So it's not to put it outside yourself, as much as just to realize that you're part of humanity. That it's a given in this room of what, a hundred people, there's going to be a certain percentage that are struggling with back pain or leg pain or some form of, how many, physical unpleasantness, how many people here? Let me add, say 90%. (laughs) We're an aging population. (laughs) Isn't it true? So it just helps to know that so that you don't feel so victimized by by it. Yeah. This is called the multiple hindrance attack. (laughs) The (laughs) well-known... Yeah. (laughs) You understand? Taking refuge in the Sangha. What made it um, the experience of refuge in the Sangha? What, what brought that on? What, what was it that was going on? You felt the sleepiness and you felt restlessness. And how did you feel that you were taking refuge? I, I felt not alone. Okay, so it was that sense of the universe that we, a lot of us probably were going through things. So you felt you were in company. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and this is interesting because this question came up during our orientation too, which is that there is a power to gathering with others for spiritual practice. 
And there's a reason that over the centuries beings have gotten together to practice together. There is a, a real sense of um, experiencing a connectedness which has always been true but you can sense it in a more vibrant way when people are right there physically. And you can also sense our collective intentionality. I mean, everyone that took the trouble to come here in some way has a longing to feel more real and more awake and more open. So there's some power to our collective aspiration and that has been true. But it's also true that even when you're sitting officially by yourself at home, we're all in this world together wanting to wake up and still intending and trying to make our day uh, one of, in some way, a worshipful, wakeful day. So you're still part of a web. It's just not so apparent. And it's a beautiful practice. This is why I like Tonglen so much. Um, This practice of whatever you're experiencing, to go ahead and feel it fully within your own being, but also to sense the realness that this is an experience of many, many beings, and to bring that into your meditation actively. And for you in particular, because you do get so nourished by this collective sense, to go ahead and more intentionally activate that in your own private meditation. And let me know how that goes for you. Yeah, thank you. Could you all hear that? Okay, the um, situation is that wanting and fearing came together, which they do. I mean, when you want something, there's always the fear of not having it. When you fear something, it's the fear of not getting what you want. They flip sides. And that when this came up, there was some sense of usefulness in exploring the content, that there was actually some sense of more understanding and so on coming out of that. Whereas our instructions in meditation are um, to notice the content, but to open to the experience in a very physical way, to feel the sensations of wanting and the sensations of fearing in your body, and to let that that weather system move through without getting so caught in the storyline. So the question is then, well, what happens if you find the stories helpful? Okay, and it's a good question. There is a real truth to the fact that examining the stories of our life can be incredibly useful if it's done in a wise way. And we certainly spend a lot of time doing that. So this isn't to say that wise reflection doesn't have a part to play in healing. What we don't do so much, and what's essential also in waking up, is the capacity to not be so identified with the thoughts and the stories. It's back to Trungpa's um, sensing the sky with the bird flying through. If we're so focused on picking apart what kind of bird it is and does he have a broken wing, we forget that our nature is also the sky and the water and the waves, and we forget a, a quality of wholeness which really is part of our freedom. We get lost in the story. We forget the fullness of our nature. So the beauty of meditation practice is it starts training us to let go, let go, not be so lost in the content, 
But that doesn't mean that there aren't times that it's absolutely useful to go back and explore the details of the story, just to have both capacities. Okay? Thank you. Yeah. I don't know if you could all hear, but just to uh, reiterate something, when we're feeling aversion, along with that feeling is the rightness of the feeling and that we should feel and it's got a purpose and there's something intelligent about it. That's being identified with the aversion. That They go hand in hand. When we feel angry, you know, there's a rightness to it. And not to push it away. Not to push away the anger. Just to become aware of it. What I'd like to invite you to do this week, and I hope a lot of you will be able to be here this week, practice some during the week, and come back next week so we can take this the next step, is to begin to notice and to name these different forces, just like you did, aversion, aversion, not try to get rid of anything, not try to do anything to the experience, but just to rest in that recognition in an open and accepting way and see what happens. Just see what happens. Some of you might find you go fear, fear, and you just notice it and it becomes terror, terror, okay? It doesn't, not suggesting it'll always go away. But you're developing a profound tool for transformation by beginning to be able to name and notice what's there and not do something, rather just be present with it. It's the opposite of our conditioning. So just to invite you to use this week, note, anger, fear, aversion, note wanting mind, sleepiness, restlessness, and see what you can notice about it. And then next week, the talk will be taking each one of those and exploring the different ways we can deepen a quality of genuine presence and real healing around them. So it's nine o'clock now. Again, next week we'll do the same thing. We'll leave 15, 20 minutes at the end um, so we can have a bit, it, it's, it's really wonderful to me that you are willing to share, especially in a larger group, so I thank you for that. I'd like to close with a poem. So listen meditatively, if you will. This is Ramakrishna, one of the great saints of uh, this decade, I mean this century. O longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Do not confine your innate infinity within the mansions of finitude, within concepts, names, forms. Don't be confined. Your naked awareness alone, O mind, your boundless heart, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. O longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature.
Let's close by bringing our voices and hearts together. We'll be chanting. And as we've done before, we'll just chant Om, and just as soon as you've finished expelling the breath, begin again with the next breath. Feel free to harmonize. sacred presence. May all beings awaken. May all beings be free.